0: Well, good morning, church, and happy Easter. Are you, are you back yet? You are still in conversation? Happy Easter, everyone. He is risen. All right. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Tyson. I'm one of the pastors on the team here at Colwood Church, and I'm glad that you are joining us this Easter Sunday morning. And as we jump into this morning's message, let me ask a question. Do we have any Marvel fans in the house today? You Marvel fans are much louder than the 9 a.m. Marvel fans. It's a good thing. You're awake. You've had your coffee. Over the last decade plus, it's been amazing to see Marvel move from this comic book company that had some shows here and there to this worldwide company that's been bought by Disney and produces hit after hit and show after show. And even if you don't like the movies, that's okay. They they are some of the highest grossing movies in the world. And before I go on any further, no, I do not own any shares in Disney. This is not a paid advertisement. But Marvel continues to pump out show after show, adding it to Disney Plus and movies across the world. And one of the new series from this past year that Marvel put out was their What If series. Did anyone see this one? Their What If series gave different possibilities to some of the main storylines throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, what if Agent Peggy Carter was the first Avenger instead of Captain America? What if Thor didn't have a brother? What if the Avengers were taken over by a zombie apocalypse? These thrilling questions that some of you are bored by this morning. But in each episode, they looked at how one change in their cinematic universe could have ripple effects that went across everything. And this series had me thinking, have you ever got to the end of a story, maybe it was a novel, or maybe it was a movie, or even a real life story, and you got to the end of it and you said, man, I wish that story ended differently. Has that that ever happened to you? A Romeo and Juliet in high school, you're reading through Shakespeare and you get to the end, and spoiler alert, they die. It's supposed to be a great love story, but at the end, the, the Montagues and Capulets, instead, these two families are entrenched in hating each other to the point where instead of Romeo and Juliet living happily ever after, they don't. And what if the Montagues and Capulets buried their feud and they could live happily ever after? The Great Gatsby, another novel that's been turned into a movie, at the end of it, again, spoiler, but it's been out for a while, Gatsby dies. You can watch it if you want. Leo does a great job in the movie. Awesome movie, but sorry that I wrecked the ending for you. What if the story ends with Gats- Gatsby reaching his dreams instead? What if Humpty Dumpty never fell off that wall? These are the questions people were asking today. Well, egg humor for you on Easter Sunday. Now, I'm sorry, I'm a dad now. <laughs> it happens. Maybe a different example comes to your mind, but you get to the end of a story and you you have this question, what if it ended differently? What if the ending went a different direction? Recently, I I watched a series of three movies and then read a book and all of them ended in tragedy. And I was like, I gotta read something happy. This is not good. The main characters all passed away and and they, they tragically died. And tragedies have a way of connecting us to the brokenness of this world, don't they? They have a way of connecting us to the fact that not every story has a happy ending. Not every story is neatly tied up with a bow on it. And I'm guessing if I was to sit with you, you could share stories from your life about hopes and dreams that didn't go the way you had expected, about losing a family member or a loved one way too early or way too young, or a relationship that ended when you weren't expecting it. And in this situation, exactly like this, the disciples of Jesus find themselves 2,000 years ago. They wake up one morning in a tragedy. Their teacher, their leader, the one that they've given three, li- three years of their lives to follow, Jesus, has been taken away by the authorities. He has been beaten, he's been mocked, and he's been put on a cross where ultimately he gives his life. And I'm sure the day after his death, the disciples were asking a, qu- a lot of what-if questions. I'm sure Peter was wondering, what if I actually continued to fight and didn't listen to Jesus and put away my sword? I'm sure we could have gotten out of that situation. What if instead of denying Jesus 3 times, I actually listened to I actually listened to Jesus when he told me that I was going to do that? What if I had the courage to stay strong when he needed me most? The other disciples were probably wondering, what if we knew that it was Judas? Could we have stopped this from happening? What if Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem where people were waiting to kill him? Would he still be alive teaching and performing miracles? What if Jesus used the power that he'd used so often to heal others, to get himself down off that cross? What if? And in the face of losing their leader, their teacher, and their friend, the disciples were left in the middle of a tragedy asking What if? And yet the one question, the one what-if kind of question that does not seem to cross any of their minds is what if Jesus came back? What if Jesus rose from the dead? Now we know it didn't cross their minds because of how the New Testament records it on Sunday morning when they find his tomb empty. In John chapter 20, it says this. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, and so she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, which is John's way of, of how he describes himself in his own gospel. She said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then, following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been around his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Now first, this is just an aside, but this is one of my favorite pieces of scripture, mainly because we see John's pettiness in telling us that he outran Peter to the tomb. That is hilarious. If you think the Bible's not funny, come on. He recorded in his gospel that he was faster than Peter. That is so funny. I don't know. I, I just love, I love reading that. Along with that, it can be easy for us to look at a passage like this and to wonder, how did the disciples not get it? How did the disciples look at this empty tomb and not understand? In Mark chapter 9, 30 to 32, Jesus actually tells the disciples this is going to happen. Jesus says to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. The disciples have Jesus telling them what's going to happen. Then they see the empty tomb happening, and yet they still don't expect it. Why? Well, because like you and I, for the most part, dead people stay dead. In our experience, we don't have a category for someone rising from the dead, and these Jewish men that were following Jesus in the first century didn't have a category for it either. It broke their worldview. They had a belief that there would be a resurrection one day at the end of time where all people would rise again, but one person rising from the dead, that didn't fit. A future resurrection of all people, sure, but one person coming back from the grave didn't even cross their minds. Now, for those of you who are already down with this story, you're already like, yeah, I believe Jesus rose from the grave. None of this may be new to you. But for those of you who are maybe new to Christianity, or maybe you're here this weekend to appease a spouse or a parent on a long weekend, you're like, let's just have a nice long weekend. Fine, I'll come to church with you. If that's why you're here today, thank you for being here. I'm glad that you're here today. And if your response is... Someone doesn't rise from the dead. that is ridiculous. You are in good company this morning, because that was actually the response of one of Jesus' first disciples. And so if that's you today and you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, thanks for being here, even if it's just to make your mom happy today. If your initial response is that Jesus did not rise from the dead, and you are skeptical of it, Thomas had the same response. The other disciples were gathered together in the upper room waiting when all of a sudden Jesus comes into their presence and into their midst and he's, he appears to them. The only problem was Thomas wasn't with them that time. And so these disciples go to Thomas. They're so excited. They're like, Jesus is back. We're stoked. He's here. He's back from the dead. And we get Thomas's response in John chapter 20 to 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger into the mark of those nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Just like some of you in the room today, Thomas was like, yeah, right. Dead people stay dead. I'm not believing this, no matter how passionate some of you other disciples are about it. Unless I see evidence, there is no way that I'm going to believe that this is true. You can't expect me to just believe what you are saying. If Thomas's response resonates with you, let me encourage you. I'm not asking you to just believe because I say it's true. I'm not asking you to just take a blind leap of faith and to just say yes to something that you maybe don't believe is true. But what I am inviting you today to is to look at the evidence and ask yourself the question, what would I need to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? What evidence would you need to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Thomas had his answer. He needed to see the nail marks in Jesus' hands. He needed to put his finger in them. He needed to put his hand into his side. He had an answer for the question of what would you need to believe? What about you? Do you have an answer to that question if you walk in here skeptical today? If there was evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, would you take it seriously? Would you even consider it? And if you answered yes to those questions, let me make a case for why I don't just take the resurrection as another Marvel superhero fairy tale. I actually believe the resurrection happened. And Let me just start by saying what is taken kind of as historically common ground. This is stuff that sources outside of the New Testament would verify. We have from Roman historians like Suetonius and Tacitus and Jewish historians like Josephus these details. They share that Jesus was a real person who walked this earth. They share that he had a following of people who who went with him wherever he went, that he likely performed some miracles and signs, and that he died on a cross. Those are things that are verifiable even if you are the most skeptical of skeptical and you say the New Testament is whack and I'm not interested in it. This, these are the sources that are kind of common outside of the Bible. Jesus lived, he performed signs and wonders and he died on a cross. But let's take a look at the evidence for why I believe him rising from the dead is the best explanation for what happens next. So here's my case today. Number one, the empty tomb in Jesus' missing body. Where did Jesus' body go? If you were to look at other world views and world faiths and religions, a lot of them, you can go to the place where their founder is believed to be buried, to pay honor. There is no such place for Christianity. Jesus' body was missing that first Easter Sunday, and if if all they had to do was produce the body, the whole talk of resurrection, the whole talk of Jesus rising from the dead, all of that would cease, But no body has ever been found or been produced. Now there are theories as to why that might be the case. There are theories like the swoon theory, which says Jesus didn't actually die. He went and took like a power nap in the tomb, regained his strength, and went back at it. The problem with this belief is that Jesus wasn't killed by people who were amateurs. He was killed by Romans. Romans. And Romans were really good at killing people and snuffing out people who they deemed to be threats to their leadership. They would actually do it, crucifixion, to, to make a sign to other people. If you want to rise up against us, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to end up on a cross or you're going to end up dead. And these men who killed Jesus, these Roman soldiers, not only were they good at their jobs and good at making sure he was dead, they also had their own lives on the line. If they didn't follow through and make sure that Jesus is dead, they would have to give their life in his place. If it was just the disciples confirming that Jesus is dead, maybe we could say, oh yeah, Jesus is dead, wink. But it wasn't the disciples confirming it. It was the Roman authorities were the ones confirming that Jesus had died and they were good at their jobs. On top of that, if Jesus was beaten and whipped as assumed, if he carried that 160-pound cross all the way up the hill and then hung on that cross for hours, do you really think he had the energy to push a multiple hundred-pound stone out of the way of his own tomb? We can probably rule out this theory that Jesus just had a nap and woke back up after a period of time and regained his strength. Another theory about where Jesus' body went is that disciples or the authorities stole his body. As we read earlier, this is actually the disciples' initial reaction. Their initial reaction is someone has taken Jesus' body. We don't know where it is. Now, if it was the disciples who stole his body, let me ask you a, a quick question today How far are you willing to go for something that you know to be a lie? How far will you go if you know that something's a lie? If the disciples took Jesus' body and went around proclaiming that He rose from the dead, they were proclaiming something that they knew was a lie. If you're deluded and maybe you don't uh, believe something to, you believe something to be true, maybe you would give your life for something that you believed to be true, but were mistaken about. But I don't think you're willing to give your life for something that you know is a lie. And these disciples didn't just give their lives for something. No, that is a lie. If that's the case, they actually did it in a lot of really painful and brutal ways. If you read history on these things, some of the disciples were sawn in half. Some of the disciples were crucified. And I know that that's gory and it's graphic. But at what point did they, if they knew it was a lie that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, would you tap out and say, "Okay, I'm done with this lie. I'm not going on anymore." The empty tomb poses a problem. How do you explain where Jesus' body went? And most explanations end up falling short of giving a satisfactory response as to where Jesus' body went. The second piece of evidence that I want to present to us today is the appearances to his disciples. The New Testament claims that Jesus appeared to his disciples over 11 plus times to over 500 plus people Not just one time, but multiple times, on multiple dates, to different groups of people. Now one of the responses is, often to this kind of piece of evidence, is, well, maybe they were just hallucinating. Maybe the disciples ate some bad fish that day, and they just had a really rough day, and they're all hallucinating, and they think they saw Jesus, but they didn't. Well, the the problem with the hallucination theory is that hallucinations do happen. I'm not trying to discount that and discredit it but they don't happen over an ongoing period of time, 11 plus times to over 500 plus people in different times and different places. Not only that, the disciples, as they record Jesus rising from the grave, they actually leave details in the story as if to say, if you don't believe me, go fact check me. If you don't believe me, go ask this person. They include names and specific places, like Cleopas walking on the road to Emmaus when the risen Jesus comes and visits him. They're almost begging you and saying, if you don't believe Jesus rose from the grave, go ask Cleopas. Go to his house. Go to his neighborhood. You know where he lives. Go ask him if he saw the risen Jesus. So we have this empty tomb. We have all these appearances to all of his disciples. And we also have another piece of evidence, the embarrassing details included in, in the stories. I don't know about you, but if you're making up a story How many of you are willing to include a lot of really embarrassing and weird details that don't need to be there? Like the detail of the disciples abandoning Jesus in his time of need. That doesn't really shine a bright light on them. Like the detail of the first people that he appeared to when he rose again from the grave were women. And this is a different time and a different place. And in that time and place, women's testimonies were not actually valid in court. They weren't actually worthy of anything in court in the court setting. And so if you wanted to make up a story, you would not have women being the one in that time period to be the first to witness Jesus' resurrection. Unless it actually happened that way. There's also dissimilarity in the four gospel accounts. How many angels were at the tomb? One says one of them. Another says there were a couple of angels at the tomb. Now, uh, uh, that doesn't actually make us worry about it because instead, if you were to get together and to make up a story together, you would make sure all your details were aligned perfectly. You would say, how many angels? Okay, one, let's go with one. And you would make sure that all your stories aligned perfectly. But if you were to actually remember it as eyewitness testimony, there's gonna be some discrepancies. There's gonna be some things that maybe don't fit perfectly together And they wrote them down as they remembered them, not just as a way of getting together and making something up. If you were going to make something up, you wouldn't include embarrassing details like women being the first to see Jesus or the disciples abandoning him or the differences in testimonies. The fourth piece of evidence I want to present to you this morning is the rise of the early church. Now, historians, when they look at the rise of the early church, they are baffled. How did this group of poor peasant people with a worldview that doesn't even support one person rising from the dead go around one day proclaiming that this happened, that Jesus rose from the dead? How did, they, how did the early church rise and blow up and explode and grow so fast? How did the, these people who were proclaiming something that didn't even fit their own worldview, how do they go from believing it to being willing to give their lives for it? How did this group of scared, huddled together disciples who were fearful move to fearless and going out onto the streets, proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the grave to the point where they were taken to jail, to the point where they were beaten, and to the point where many of them died? A specific example of this powerful transformation is Jesus' own brother, James. Let me ask you the question today. What would your sibling have to do to convince you that they were God? I don't know, a whole lot in my brother's case. <laughs> I love my brother, okay. Ashton, if you see this ever, I love you, okay. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, I think that would be something that would change James's mind, don't you? James in the New Testament goes from being skeptical wanting to shut down Jesus' movement, wanting to stop him from teaching and doing miracles and performing things, to being one of the early leaders of the church of Jerusalem, giving his life for his brother's cause. We have this empty tomb. We have appearances to the disciples. We have embarrassing details. And we have the rise of the early church. And the last piece of evidence that I want to give you this morning is the existence of Christianity still today. When there is Messiah movements in history, and there were some before Jesus and there were some after, when the founder was killed, the movement ceased to function. The momentum that they gained, all the things that they were doing, stopped and slowly petered out. But that's not what happens in Christianity to the point where 2,000 years later, we have over 2 billion people worldwide who claim to be Christians. I love the way Pastor Mark Clark puts it. Christianity could not survive if it was only about Jesus' teachings, as good as those are. Even his death, as heroic as that was, could not sustain the faith by itself. It's a good example of sacrifice, but it becomes a sad and tragic story if you take out the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the story of Jesus just moves alongside of all those tragedies we talked about earlier. Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, The Great Gatsby, it's just another story with a sad ending. But because we really believe that the resurrection happened, it changes everything. Now, I know I can't convince you that Jesus rose from the dead. All I'm asking is for you to look at the evidence and ask yourself where does the evidence point? And then wrestle with the question what if Jesus really rose from the dead? If Jesus really rose from the dead, it means he is more than just a good teacher. One of the things that's common in our world today is we view Jesus as one voice among many. If you ask people from all different backgrounds, they'll say Jesus was a good man. He was a good teacher. The system kind of just pushed him down and killed him. But if Jesus really rose from the dead, he is so much more than a good teacher. He is a good teacher, but if he rose from the dead, it means that he said, I'm going to rise from the dead three days later and then actually did it. That's not something that a good teacher can do. That's something that God can do. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it, and I love this. Christianity, if false, is of no importance and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. For all of us today, we we can walk in here apathetic, indifferent towards the message of Jesus, towards the resurrection, towards him coming back to life. And my encouragement to you today is be hot or cold. Either believe that it didn't happen and hold on to that or look at the evidence and ask, where does this evidence point? Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, it means that he is God and it means that he is worthy of our worship and our honor. Thomas, the disciple I told you about earlier, who is skeptical, he said, this is the evidence that I need. I need to put my fingers in Jesus's hands. I need to put my hand into his side where the spear pierced him. And guess what? Jesus gives him that evidence. And what is Thomas's response? My Lord and my God. That is his response to the evidence that he sees. And if we didn't, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything that we believe is in vain. The apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ had not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain and so is your faith. But if Jesus really rose from the dead, it means that death does not have the final say, church. It means that whatever darkness, whatever sickness, whatever disease, whatever you are facing in your life right now, that is a tomb that is holding you, does not have the final say, Jesus has the final say because he has defeated death, he has defeated sickness, he has defeated disease, and one day we will rise again. It's not a promise we're going to experience those things this side of eternity. Sometimes that happens, but one day we will experience no more sickness, no more sadness, no more disease, no more death because Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus is more than just a good teacher today, church. He is the King of King and Lord of Lords. And like Revelation says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King. If he rose from the dead, he's the King. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about it. He is a good King. He is a King who is willing to bend down and serve those are following him. He grabbed a towel. He washed their feet. He's a king who was willing to give his life for you and for I. He was a king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in humility. He is a good king. Jesus is alive, church, and he is king, and he's a good king. And every Easter where we celebrate the resurrection, we celebrate that Jesus has all power, all authority over evil over death he is the king of king and lord of lords and he is a good king and that's a message we need in a world today where people use their power in ways to use and abuse other people to bully those who follow them to push people down to try and marginalize people even more jesus is not that kind of leader he is not that kind of king And he is a king who is good. And ultimately, the one who has more power than anyone in the universe uses that power to serve, to give his life for you and for me. Jesus is alive. He is the king and he is good. And it's because of those reasons today, church, that I want to give my life to following him. It's not just that I think he's a good moral teacher. It's not just that I think that he's a good guy and has showed amazing things to us. I do believe that but I believe he rose from the dead and that makes all the difference in the world. So what if, what if Jesus rose from the dead? If he did, I would contend it makes all the difference in the world for you as well. It means that our faith is not just based on a good moral teaching, but it's based on a historical event that either happened or it didn't happen. You can check it out. You can examine the evidence more. But if Jesus rose from the dead, it means that he is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father right now, and he is king. Will you allow him to be a king of your life today? Would you pray with me, church, this morning? With every eye closed in this place this morning, If you're someone who walked in here skeptical today, if you're someone who has never said yes to following Jesus and this new information or maybe you've sensed that God is saying or doing something in your spirit this morning, and you say, I wanna follow Jesus. I want the life that he has. My my life has been that cold tomb and I want Jesus to roll away the stone and give me life. If that's where you're at this morning, I wanna encourage you. On the count of three, just lift up your hand. I'd love to pray for you this morning. So if that's you, on the count of three, one, two, three. Is there anyone in the room? Thank you for your honesty this morning. Thank you. Jesus, for those people who are saying yes to you today, for those people who are saying yes to following you, I pray that God, you would give them the new life that they hope for. That God, you would help them to see that in you, is life. In you is freedom. You have come to set us free and to give us hope for a future, Lord. And so for my friends who are saying yes to you today, I pray that you would show them how to follow you in the days ahead. Show them what it means to surrender and to give their lives to you as king of their life and as their good teacher. Lord, thank you today that you rose from the grave and that it makes all the difference in the world for us. It means that we can say what you said is true. It means that you are not just a good man, but that you truly are God and are worthy of our worship and giving our lives to following. And so today, God, help us to walk out of here encouraged to make you the king of our lives, encouraged to not just walk out of here and nod our heads but but to walk out of here saying, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God and my King. In your name, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, church, for being with us this Easter. We are grateful for you. And uh, as you go out this week, Jesus is King, Amen? amen? Amen. Have a wonderful rest of your Easter weekend.